what you read in Romans 13 about the duty of, of the ruler to punish the wrongdoer and to uphold and to protect the weak. That's every citizen's responsibility in the ballot box. And you will be held accountable for that. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here once again with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Very good. Yeah, doing all right, Nick. So, Matt, you were involved in some sort of debate conversation slash article. I didn't even need to see the topic to know that you took the no way ever position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But was it I preach, mean, preach less than an hour? Is that what the, was it a debate? <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> no, it's like when it, it, like your adult child goes away and, and, and has some kind of relationship with someone who to whom the, the person, your, your child is not married and wants to come to your house. And spend the night for Thanksgiving with his partner, be it homosexual or heterosexual. Uh, what should the Christian say? Which I mean, to me, it, it's a pretty obvious, pretty obvious answer. But but this um, the guy I was talking to is, you know, yeah, he holds the orthodox view on. I mean, I, I, he essentially holds the orthodox view on the question of sexuality. But but if you if you'd say yes to your kid doing that, like, I have to wonder how how well you understand the orthodox view because you're like <laughs> you're essentially saying okay i think this is really killing and destroying you this thing you're doing with this other person but you know what have my room yeah <laughs> but you have to <laughs> win the, we have to win the right to be heard matt and so like <laughs> your children you know you have to make sure that your your children really know they love you before you can say anything displeasing to them or else you you know so Yes, you know, that's, why, that's yeah. why our kids haven't started brushing their teeth yet. They still haven't, <laughs> still haven't, still haven't, still haven't won that, won right that freedom. Them. That's right. 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 Who am I to force her mouth open? I mean, you know, I think I'm a barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Well, guys, yesterday was election day here in the U.S., and even though neither the president nor any members of Congress were on the ballot, there were important issues nonetheless. For instance, in Kentucky, where I live, we elected a governor. The Democratic incumbent was victorious here after successfully making the election all about abortion. Abortion was on the ballot, too, in Ohio, where voters added a right to abortion to their state constitution. Now, I've seen some frustration in the aftermath on Twitter, for instance, about Christian leaders not turning out the vote sufficiently in order to elect, say, an anti-abortion governor or to defeat a pro-abortion constitutional amendment. Now, ministers and churches have historically been hesitant to involve themselves directly in politics, and those who do so today are routinely accused of, you know the word, Christian nationalism. Uh, there's a lot to talk about on this issue, the interaction of politics, ministers, local church, not to mention the politics of abortion in general. But I wanted to start with a with an interesting question, or what I think is an interesting question. Is there a difference to you between a minister standing up in the pulpit and saying abortion is a moral evil, standing up in the pulpit and saying it's a moral evil to vote for a candidate who supports abortion, and pushed to the logical conclusion, standing up in the pulpit and saying don't vote for Joe Biden, for instance. Like, are, is there an actual difference between those three statements? 
I mean, I think it sounds, I think, I think that there is a, a difference in the sense of, you know, the first statement is a statement of principle. The second statement is an application of that principle. The third statement is a, is a, is a very narrow contemporary application of that principle. Do I think any saying either one of those things would be wrong? I don't think so. I, um, I don't know that I would, I would take that approach personally. I know I've preached the first two. I, I've told, I've told people, yeah, you're, you can't support a baby murdering candidate. Like you just can't do it no matter who it is, but I haven't named names. I mean, I think, I think if you, if you go to that second step, I think the application in a narrow, more narrow field is, is self-explanatory. Uh, but I do think it's, I think we're responsible at this point. I mean, not, not every issue that is debated in the political field is something that the minister of the, of the gospel have to take up. But I resist the, I, the attempt to categorize this as a, as just a political issue, which is what I think those who don't want anyone to talk about, at least on the right, are trying to, would, would want to say that, is, that you, when you talk about abortion from the pulpit or in your Christian ed class, you're you're bringing politics into the into the church. You're contributing to the culture war. Blah 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 blah. Well, call it what you want. I don't care what you call it. But the reality is, we're living. Our our nation has, for the last 60, 70 years or whatever, been pursuing holocausts, the, the, the mass murder of, of innocent babies. Um, and we've only recently made it possible to stop the mass murder through the overturning of Roe v. Wade, thanks be to God. Um, but now the, the fight goes to the states, and we're going to lose some states, we're going to win some states. I think people have been surprised about Ohio, and uh, primarily because it's considered a red state, a Republican state, where people are generally thought of as more conservative. But the reality is, I think most conservatives are totally for abortion in the case of rape and incest and for abortion up to a certain time in the pregnancy. I think the people who would say no abortion ever are very few, a very small minority. And and in that sense, I think that, that that is a failure of the churches. Yeah. Because the churches should be telling people how abhorrent morally it is to even think that this is a, a possibility within a Christian framework or a worldview. So it's not a it's not a failure of the churches to get politically motivated. I mean, I, I, I think your question sounded like it was the churches should be more politically involved. I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think it's the case that, that, that making the point that murdering an innocent baby in the womb should be something that ministers of the gospel should be doing all the time regularly so that when their people go to the voting booth, they think twice about not casting their ballot for someone who would, who would even do such a thing. I mean, R.C. Sproul, I think, is one of the famous things he said is that he wouldn't even vote for a, a, a person to the office of dog catcher, city dog catcher, yeah. if he was pro-abortion because you, you shouldn't be anywhere near a leadership position. And that right. should be the basic Christian position for every Christian. Yeah, I mean, what we're watching now is just the failure of of the church and our and our Christian leaders who have you know basically sold out uh, actual Christian convictions for for a standing within the sort of cultural elite in the past at least the past twenty years. I mean, since I've been an adult, um, if not I mean, out of college, if not longer, 
you know, because the the seemingly radical position was, you know, that no exceptions for rape or incest or no, you know, that that the actual beginning of life was a con- conception, which and the ramifications of which was that it was a murder, you know, and that there was all sorts of capab- culpability for people that murder other people. You know, I mean, these are these are the logical ramifications of believing that life begins a conception and the Christian leadership. Um, you know, and I think this is this is mainline, certainly mainline church, but even, you know, we're now seeing in the big non-denominational evangelical type churches have uh, failed to equip and failed to articulate and certainly failed to prepare uh, their people. Because I, I guarantee you, particularly in places like Ohio, uh, Kentucky, for sure, um, you know, the majority of the people who probably voted um, or at least allowed for the ascension of well, in Kentucky allowed for the ascension of a pro-abortion governor and in Ohio voted for this amendment would in some capacity at least say that they were Christian, if not Christian adjacent, you know, and the fact that you could simultaneously say, well, yes, of course, I'm a Christian. And I also support a woman's right to choose up until, you know, week 20 or 22. Well, that's, that's just exposes how illogical and schizophrenic the actual kind of quote unquote pro-life teaching and movement has been. And I think this is a this is a challenge for us for the next, you know, we might have another 50 year fight on our hands. You know, they had 50 years of fighting against the the Roe versus Wade, but um, that was just going to bring it back to the state. You know, I'd liken it to like the Emancipation Proclamation or something. I mean, I'm not for saying that we need to have a, you know, an actual bloody war, but at the same time, you know, just because a pronouncement was made federally, legally, doesn't mean that it changed the hearts and minds of the people in the various states, clearly. And we're going to have to get back into the constant discussion about, um, you know, what God says about or what the Bible says about human dignity, about when it begins, about who's the author of life, about what the uh, ramifications of the flip side of that is. You know, I think that if you it's unsurprising to me that you had an entire two generations of people who were grown up within the Roe versus Wade who see, you know, record levels of of aimlessness, depression, anxiety, hopelessness, despair, nihilism, you know, rise in gun violence and all of the other tick-offs um, makes sense because you were brought into a world simply by the capricious whim of uh, people who you now find yourself the same age as, who you now realize were not, um, you know, omniscient. And and all of a sudden that world becomes much more confusing than it otherwise, otherwise should be, and so on and so forth. And so I think last night we saw, you know, exactly what I think you're right, Matt, that there is most people seem to be hesitant to take the next step in the logic of anti-abortion thinking, which would be if it's in a baby ever, it's a baby always. I mean, that's, that's the whole point, uh, because there's no possible way to make that determination. And the hardest and saddest part about it is the more science we have, the closer we can get to, yeah. to actually studying the beginnings of life, the clearer it is, you know, I mean, the absolute clear it is. I mean, I was, uh, we support the pregnancy center of the low country here. It's St. Luke's and a number of years ago, they bought or they helped purchase one of these mobile ultrasound units, you know, which is, um, according to the, the left, means that we were participating in quote unquote targeting vulnerable pregnant women. And I was talking about this on Sunday. I was like, so I guess y'all are all complicit in the targeting. If by targeting, you mean allowing a woman to see the life within her before she makes a an, an life altering decision for both of them, which, you know, this side of heaven can only be uh, comforted, never fully healed. Well, then I guess call me, you know, then I guess we're guilty of that. But, but, but I think you're right. I mean, I, I was, 
I, I couldn't really watch the returns last night because we um I mean, on almost every station that we have access to, uh, you know, there was almost a uh, an almost like a sense of I told you so. And this was from the conservative side to the to the um, more progressive side of the news anchors. You know, we told you this was out of line. It's not a with winning American issue. People. Yeah. We told you this is not a position that most, quote unquote, normal Americans are going to support. And so, see, you got what you you know, you 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 lost your bargain. And they're particularly elated over Glenn Youngkin and his loss. And, you know, the um, overwhelming anger that was being um, evinced or or attested to from the polling sites in Ohio, you know, the sort of sense of triumphal, righteous indignation that how dare you consider limiting us in this way was really quite a sobering evening. I mean, I had to, um, you know, we watched it for about, you know, 20 minutes until 6.6% of the votes come in and they call the elections, you know, because they know the 17 different blocks where if they vote one way, then the whole thing's over. It was pretty sobering. I have to admit, I was I was kind of I was braced and I'm steeled for a um well what will I think will be a lot longer fight for the hearts and minds of of the next generation in terms of truly becoming a hopefully a pro life nation. What do you guys think about voting in general? Is the Christian, in a sense, morally culpable for their political engagement for their votes? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've taught my my position on this and what I taught my people is that when in our system of government, which I'm not, which after last night and and which is just one more example of of the way the country's been going for a long time, I'm not so sure I'm in favor of our system of government, but in our system of government as it is, you exercise governing authority as, an, as a citizen. So what you read in Romans 13 about the duty of, of the ruler to punish the wrongdoer and to uphold and to protect the weak, that's, that's every true. citizen's responsibility. Yeah. In, yeah, right. In, in, in the ballot box, and you will be held accountable for that. Like, so if you, so if you, if you just think your voting is a kind of amoral sphere where you can, you know, just pull the lever for the party you've always supported because you've always supported that party, and you don't like the other guys, no, you, you, you are exercising rule and, and governance, and and so you, if you, and so if you vote for a pro-abortion candidate, you've got blood on your hands. I mean, it's it's a, it's I, I agree that it's a sin. It's a it's a terrible sin. And if you have voted for a pro-abortion candidate, you need to repent, confess that as sin and repent because you've contributed to the death of babies. Well, and this is and this is where it gets even more complicated in our because in our system because you know we're not a direct democracy and so we're we're a representative democracy and so that's when these character issues come into play because you know we're not simply voting for a a candidate that has a stated position on various things, although that's important, but we're voting for the the type person who we want to be our actual representative. You know, and of course, I think some of these life or death, you know, black or white, in my opinion, issues that can be sort of bellwethers, I think are important. But there's also a sense in which we're electing someone to carry our our best interests, or at least the, the good of, of the of the whole, um, into the unknown, you know. And so I think that's that's even makes it more complicated in terms of our our engagement with the political world. But but when I say complicated, I mean it makes it even more incumbent upon us to to not just shirk it and not just to chalk it up as you know he is going to vote this way and he's going to vote that way, as if we were voting for a you know just whoever could could you know what is that guy in napoleon dynamite you know give us a fulfill our wildest dreams you know like whatever politician but you know this is that that presumes a level of you know engagement and discourse and and frankly sophistication that i i mean i don't know if we ever had but certainly doesn't seem like we're on the cusp of 
of either regaining or reaching anytime soon, in, in which is really kind of disheartening in many ways. Uh, that being said, I do think, Nick, that, that the Christian is at the very least is obligated to, we're obligated to steward the responsibility we have in every arena of our lives to the best that we can, um, knowing that we were going to make mistakes and fail. Nevertheless, you know, we, as Luther said, sin boldly. If we're going to make a decision, we pray about it, inform ourselves and move. And to that extent, I think that we of all people should be engaged in the political process from the from the voting to the actual vocation. And I think that the the problem is, is that many Christian people have ceded the ground to the progressives because they are by temperament, either conflict avoidant or um, have been told that, uh, you know, kindness um, or sort of meekness in a um, in a non-biblical way is the most winsome Christian virtue. And so the moment that like tensions arise or things get slightly heated or the kind of disagreements are right around the corner, then um, tender-hearted Christian people pull pull away. And while I'm gra- grateful that I don't live in a lot of a world of like just angry, disagreeable, you know, rancorous Christian people. I am grateful when we have people like, for instance, Mike Johnson, you know, who who can just stand up and straightforwardly say, well, this is what I believe and why, and this is what I'm going to do. And this is, you know, this is what they're going to say about me. And so be it. That's refreshing. And I wish, you know, again, that's not a particular statement on every one of his single policies, but in general, the idea of a Christian having the sense of being called, equipped, and and equipped for a purpose within the political realm is something that I think we're going to have to rethink from an evangelical Bible-believing perspective in a much more thoughtful way than has been done, because we um, clearly have some work to do. It's worth saying again that, you know, as we've said before many times, that the the word political just comes from the Greek word for city, and that our congregants live in the Sorry. city. They may come to us for an hour, two hours, three or four hours a week, but then we're sending them out to live in the polis and they will be engaged politically one way or another. And if we are catechizing them as we're called to do to preach and teach, it seems like one of the things that we must be about is teaching them how to live in the city. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, the biggest, I mean, we should, we should just go through, we didn't prepare for this, right. But we could have gone through like the biggest straw men that are the most, the most normally silenced Christians in these debates. And the first one that I can think of just off the top of my head is this idea that you quote unquote, can't legislate morality. You know, you'll hear people say that. And it's just such a joke. Like literally every single law is somebody's morality codified. That's all it is. Like, you know, I think it's immoral for people to pay uh, higher health insurance premiums for their automobile, I mean, uh, automobile health uh, premiums, uh, insurance. So therefore, I'm going to make a law that you have to wear your seatbelt. Like, that's my morality. You know, it has nothing to do with whether I want you to die or not. It's just I don't want to pay $600 a month when I could pay $200 because all you people riding around, you know, uh, on the tops of your cars without um, wearing helmets or whatever. And, you know, you could say, well, that doesn't seem like a moral question. Well, of course, it's a moral question. It just depends on what morality is most primary in your life. You know, I mean, is it economic morality? Is it is it um, sexual morality? Is it socioeconomic? I mean, like, you know, we can we can cut it all apart if we want. But the idea that a law by de- definition is not telling you something that really is irrespective of what you think about it and somebody else thinks it's in your interest to follow that's the definition of a law. And so when they talk about not, not wanting to quote unquote legislate morality, you're like, well, then 
then you're talking about having no laws because if there are going to be laws, there's going to be a version of morality. And so then you need to just drop that pretense. And so, you know, I think that's like the beginning of the conversation. And then when he turn, gets particularly to abortion, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm, in, I'm pro-life, but I do understand rape and incest and, you know, uh, life of the mother. It's like, okay, well, let's just think about that. Well, if you actually believe it's a baby, then what you're going to do is just, you're going to subject a, a traumatized, you know, young woman, girl in this case, you know, to another life-altering trauma, which is going to saddle her now with two life-altering traumas from a very early age, one of which she can recover from, however haltingly, and one of which she will only live with echoes of until, God willing, she meets that baby, you know, in heaven. I mean, like, this is what we're talking about. So that's that's one aspect of it. And the other one is that, you know, we talk about life of the mother, you said, well, that's, there's always been a reality. And there's countless stories down throughout all of human history, where the the actual Sophie's choice of which one of these two must live. In many cases, the mother has chosen the life of the baby over her own. You know, I mean, this is, we've talked about this before, but Laz and I had a had a long talk and had to sign something. I had to, you know, because she told me before we had our first child, like, just so you know, if it comes down to this, we want this baby and I'll see you in heaven, you know? And I said, well, that's going to be a really difficult decision to make. She's like, well, good. We're going to make it before you have to get into that place. And, you know, that's a, that's a decision that nevertheless is, is a real one, but it's, it's predicated upon the fact that there are, are two human beings. It's not just the life of the mother. And then this, amorphous yet to be human thing. And so, I mean, again, there's more you can talk about, but these are the type of things that I think, you know, the discussions should be taking place even now among family dinner tables, you know, youth groups among pastors and their congregations. I'm not necessarily saying you have a sermon series on this or something, but like adult ed, you know, catechesis, you know, small groups, like when these conversations come up, these are the type preparation that Christians have to have, if only to expose where they currently are, which is what is happening in Ohio and Virginia, which is that they don't believe any of this, you know, because say what you want, say what you want about being pro-life. If you're actually going to, you're going to vote for that amendment one in Ohio, which opens the door and allowance for abortion all the way up until the third trimester, you know, through partial birth even, uh, well, then you obviously don't believe that it actually is murder, that it is a child. And that's where we need to begin before we allow you to keep saying we're lying to yourself frankly and that's what we're watching all around the country i think that as far as the protestant world the the biggest i guess voting block would be um evangelicals and the biggest evangelical churches the ones that are i guess we call the mega churches what's the what's the steady diet that, that people who go to those churches get from their pastors they don't they don't get a lot of ethical considerations they don't get a lot of thoughts about well, what what is a Christian worldview versus what's a pagan worldview. They, they, they get, give me seven steps to have a better career or seven steps to a better marriage or seven steps to whatever. And so they're getting like life tip sermons. That's, that's, that's the kind of sermon you preach to grow, uh, grow a church. At least that's, that's what the church, ex, the church growth experts tell you. That's what you preach on practical life issues. And you steer, steer as far away as you can from things like abortion or things like, homosexuality or things that, that might be controversial. You want to draw people into your church. You don't want them to run away. And so you, you have to be very practical, very friendly, very happy. And so that, not to broach a subject we've talked about ad nauseum, but in, in, in neutral world, that's fine. In negative world, you've now, you've now trained people not to be even able to notice the, the conflict between their faith and what's going on in the public square. So classically, 
training Christians in, in, in the sense of raising them up to know what orthodoxy is and what the scriptures say, know what the gospel is, what the law is. There should be walking outside the doors of the church and just turning on you know the news. There should be a visceral shock and and, and a stunned reaction on the part of the average Christian what what we see going around us on around us. But there's not because the church has become so much like the world um, that there's hardly hardly anything to be shocked about. That that hardly people know that was shocking. Well, and the end well, game of a lot of those sermon series is something like satisfaction or yeah. a positive life. And I saw on Twitter, somebody shared that the reason that even people who don't like abortion vote for it is that they're, they see it as happiness insurance and they, they don't want these things to have to happen, but we as a culture, and I think even as an evangelical church have trained people to see that the highest good is personal happiness and i think this is this can be seen even sort of pre-abortion discussion in the the acceptance i think almost the the unthinking acceptance of contraception in general the idea that that sex and childbearing can be separate and that while certainly we would believe that the scripture teaches that sex is supposed to be enjoyed by a husband and wife there are other things too it's not just for personal pleasure and when you combine all of this into the soup of of how to live a quote fulfilled life which easily gets translated into how to be happy you want to have that happiness insurance and so even if you're like oh well gosh i really wish that wouldn't happen safe legal and rare but if it's going to impinge on someone's happiness, I've been taught to think that that's the worst possible outcome. So we have to allow for it. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I think, you know, I'm gonna get back to that point, but before I leave too far, Matt, I think that, you know, I agree with you that these churches didn't preach, didn't touch on, you know, a lot of sins biblically or traditionally understood until they started preaching, you know, as we well know, a couple of years ago about culturally acceptable sins. And we had brought in all of the uh, systemic racism and all of the, um, well, in particular, but all of the various isms that were then, you know, as soon as they made the front page of the New York Times, well, then they made it into your local, you know, evangelical megachurch. And all of a sudden you have people talking about themselves as sinners in a variety of ways that had very little to do with what the how the Bible would define it, yet was very much in keeping with a certain good Christian perspective that the that the cultural elites would would allow for. You know, as long as you you spoke about yourself in the ways that the Economist and the Atlantic and the New York Times would have you, well, then you were considered to be um the right type of Christian, you know, and I think this is this is something that was was quite a shock, actually, although we had like people like, well, anyway, I don't want to get too far afield about that, but I just wanted to point that out. But I do think you're right, Nick, that there's a that there's a sense in which, you know, abortion in particular, I think my, my personal opinion is that there in the past 70 years, if you look at 95 million and counting abortions, that means that every single person in America is at least one degree separated, if not, and we've talked about this before, if not implicated directly. And without forgiveness, without a conversion, without, you know, what Paul says in Romans 7, the law killing you, you know, which means that you actually one day wake up and realize that, that you have in fact been complicit in a murder. And then by but extension, the new birth finding, is actually possible. Amen. Right? Amen. Right. No, but I'm saying like yeah, yeah. the law, but until, until that happens, well then right. it's too heavy it's too much i talk about this all the time in my in our 
rector's forum at the church because you know i i keep um slightly defensive i talk about this fairly often abortion but i say well you know this is what everyone's talking about so i mean we could take a week off when when the new york times and the usa today editorial doesn't have something about this in any given week well they won't talk about it until then like you know seven years ten years running but i do say you know pray for the people that are out there because they're they're running you know like they're they're like they're like jonah running from nineveh like they're running and the storm's just getting bigger and louder and the anger is getting deeper and more visceral. I mean, to look at the people, I mean, the, the elation over this quote unquote victory in Ohio and sort of the, the the deep visceral kind of psychic scream that erupted from some of these groups of people about this quote unquote victory was just nothing short of demonic. And you look at that and you say, well, you know, there are demons and there are there are wounds and there are people harassed and there are sins. And so if all these are together, the Bible would describe this, these people as a need of an exorcism, need of deliverance and salvation. And I think that's where, again, not as a sense of self-righteousness, but in just a sense of, of pastoral concern is that, you know, that's what we are need to be prepared for in the church is that we're going to have some people who finally have the, the, the cresting of the wave that they've been running for overtake them. And we pray that they are within earshot of a preacher at that point, or at least someone that goes to a church so that they can be carried into a church, however sheepishly, before they sink them further into despair. Uh, but I think that's where, you know, you've got you've got an entire generation that has psychically and spiritually wounded itself through pornography and abortion and casual sex and all the things that promise life that actually prove death. Again, back to Romans 7. And we are not, again, holier than thou, but looking as like Isaiah up towards the heavens as people of unclean lips, nevertheless, knowing that that the coal can cleanse and purify us. And I think that's that's going to be a message that I think has to be more persistent and more loudly proclaimed at each level of the church's proclamation going forward than it ever has been, at least in our lifetimes. You cannot look your sin in the face unless you actually believe that there are shoulders capable of bearing it for you. Amen. Amen. I think, I mean, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but one reason I think that uh, God is an Anglican is that when he set forth uh, the lectionary readings for the daily office, and for the Sunday office, often you find them really coinciding with what's going on in the world and speaking to it. So the daily office this morning and yesterday morning, both were taking on the life of Manasseh, the king. And yesterday it was in Second Chronicles, and this morning it was in Second Kings. And, you know, Manasseh, for those of you who don't know, he was probably the most wicked of the wicked kings of Judah who uh, went so far as to sacrifice his own sons in the Valley of Hinnom and just completely desecrated the temple and set up idols and high places and everything all over Judah and Jerusalem in the temple until God sent the Assyrians who took him into captivity. And it was there that he had everything ripped away from him and he he repented. It was, and it's a it, Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles tell that story. You don't get that in, in Second Kings. The Second Chronicles tells that he humbled himself, repented, and, uh, and he came back to Judah ultimately and, and enacted reforms. And it's just such a remarkable thing to hear that a man who was so wicked and so willing to murder his own children could also be forgiven, redeemed, and, and made new. But that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a whole culture full of people who are. Uh, who have the same desire 
as Manessa to rid themselves of their children so they can have whatever good things they think they can get afterwards. Um, and yet God is capable of, of so removing the blessings from a person, so reducing a person to the lowest point that he or she realizes, oh, I've, I have no hope. I have to turn to God. <laughs> and then that's where the cross comes in, of course. So, yeah, I mean, all I have to say, I just, I, I, reading that, those two accounts over these last two days has been good. To uh, We have a group of people who do this together, a good shepherd, and it's been good to see the depths of human depravity are no match for God's grace when he wants to redeem and heal and reform. So I've seen sort of competing reactions to this online. One is that, you know, the Republicans have to get rid of the anti-abortion plank in their platform and the other is that evangelicals have to find a party that's willing to you know stand firm and hold the line on this and and not necessarily support republicans who may not actually care about this issue as much as they care about winning elections what do you guys think is the near future of this issue as an electoral pivot point i mean i think the republican party's already compromised just the sexuality question there terribly compromised and so i i'm not a republican anymore and i i think i think it's just a matter of time before the standard republican position is abortion but not as much as the democrats <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right just, and and it, it already is kind of that so i don't think the republican party is home for actual conservatives anymore and it shouldn't be anyway that doesn't mean that we can't gain cultural ground i think we can i just think i think we've got to do a uh, different kind of work than, than the work we were doing when the Republican Party was wholly conservative. I do think I do think in we earlier earlier in the um, in the podcast that the church has to take the lead in this and not rely on the political party. That's right. I mean, I think you know this idea. I was watching Mike Johnson get an interview the other day, and the interviewer was insinuating in her questions that since he was the Speaker of the House, that he needed to have views that were, quote unquote, in line with the people of America. And, you know, there's a certain sense in which that's true. We talked about before, but there's also a sense in which, you know, we elect people to lead us, you know, and that sometimes, and in fact, many cases, leaders are called to make decisions that are, you know, in the short term, uh, difficult for the long term good, you know, and that's the wisdom that we pray for that they exercise. And I think that this idea that we stick our finger up and we take polls about what consensus is on these life altering kind of worldview shaping positions on things like human dignity and when life begins is some sort of uh, polling issue has got to just be jettisoned out of hand. And so I think, you know, you think about like William Wilberforce back in the British slave trade, you know, he enters into parliament as someone that was unthinkable that you would ever have a functioning economy, uh, much less an empire without chattel slavery. And yet he devoted his entire political career to the un, the initially unpopular and ultimately victorious position of complete abolition. You know, and I think that that's those are the type of politicians that we're going to have to elect that are going to be unashamed and unabashed and articulate and confident and courageous in that articulation and actually lead people, you know, not be afraid to to have the uncomfortable conversations and uh, point out the the difficult inconsistencies and the sort of really, frankly, the barbarous logic in a lot of these discussions. If we are going to save something like the Western consensus on the dignity of human life, I mean, because I think um, I mean, and I'm not the only one to say this, but I'm, I've been convinced by the people that have argued this before me, that this is all part of a whole, you know, you don't have 
the sexual revolution, without the devaluation of procreation, without the breakdown of some sense of complementarity between the sexes, without some ascendancy of capitalism over, you know, sort of a quality of life or a devaluation of God. A, you know, I mean, it just there's you start you start go devaluation of the family and ascendancy of the state. I mean, you start putting these these things are all interconnected. And, you know, I think at the heart of it, and we can see this going back to the turn of the 20th century with Margaret Sanger, is that if if and when you can lay the axe at the root of, of human existence itself and put that level of deification in the hands of the human being as opposed to the creator, you immediately switch the entire axis of what it meant to be a, a person, which is the to, to live in gratitude for life as opposed to the author of life. And you begin to see the unraveling of that. And we're what, 100, 120 something years into it. And it's, um and it's been disastrous. And so I think that we have to have people that, that you're right, Matt, that, that boldly and unashamedly proclaim this, even if we lose some electoral votes in the short term, that um, the hearts and minds are what have to be uh, fought for. And eventually, uh, I hope that we'll see the same victory and the same sort of sense of horror that people have over chattel slavery is the same sense that we'll have over this this season of abortion or these these hopefully less than a century, but but at least these these decades of abortion will be looked back at with horror and shame, um, if not repentant gratitude for having been delivered in the same way that people do chattel slavery. And that's that I me mean, we probably won't see that, but I'm praying that my grandchildren will by God's grace. Well, amen. And we worship a Lord who can bring these things to pass. We pray for his grace and mercy. Thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 